from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, President and CEO. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Today we are joined by Blake Anthony Johnson, CEO of the Chicago Sinfonietta. He became the first African-American to hold such a position with a nationally renowned orchestra when he began his tenure in 2020. He also serves on a number of boards and committees, including the Sir Georg Schulte Foundation, the City of Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, and the EDI Orchestral Management Committee at the League of American Orchestras. He first became interested in orchestral management while a student at Vanderbilt University, from which he earned a Bachelor of Music in Cello Performance. He then completed his master's degree right up the road from us at Cleveland State University, during which time he performed here with the Canton Symphony. He went on to perform as a member of the New World Symphony and also appeared with the Cincinnati and Nashville Symphonies, among others, before turning his focus to management. Blake Anthony Johnson, thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome to Orchestrating Change. So happy to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Um, so can you just introduce yourself uh, just, and tell us a little bit about Blake Anthony uh, as you were growing up and how you got into music and all that good stuff? Sure. I actually quite enjoy this story um, because there's several stories behind it. But I always say, you know, I'm a cellist by training, a CEO by circumstance, um, my first cello was actually given to me by a Waffle House waitress, believe it or not. Um, and that's a much longer story, but essentially I used to go to the Waffle House in my neighborhood where one of my sisters, um, worked and it just kind of came up that, you know, I liked the cello and one of the workers was like, I think I have one of those things in my closet. And that's how I got my first cello actually. So, um, I started quite late as most people know, um, which was a blessing and a curse, a blessing because because I started so late and because I was really interested in competitions and had a fairly different, uh, fairly okay facilitation on left hand and a good ear, I was able to compete in, in competitions and I really didn't have to play things that um, kind of focus on the technical aspects that you really need in formal training. So I was quite successful in doing these concerto competitions. And because I was self-taught, it kind of added to the narrative. So it was like, it's not that he just won. It's like this young guy with long hair who's like kind of eccentric uh, is somehow <laughs> competing with all these people who've been taking lessons since they were four. And so that kind of uh, really launched me into this crazy wave, which I'm very much still riding. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And I'm, I'm still trying to make sense of it all, if I'm being honest. Wow. That's so cool. And where, where, what city was that Waffle House in? Oh, in Georgia. Georgia. Yeah, still in Atlanta, Georgia. Ah, Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. okay very, very fun. Good. So you were self-taught until the age of 18 before you went on to Vanderbilt, eventually Cleveland State. Uh, but what was it like going from 
self-taught to conservatory. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, I mean, so it's really funny because I'm going to see Yo-Yo in a little bit. And when I first got to Vanderbilt, there was this article that said, Vanderbilt, Flair School of Music, training the next Yo-Yo Ma, question mark. And it was just me in the practice room. Because again, everyone knew me from competitions. So um, it was even how I got to Vanderbilt was kind of serendipitous in the sense that I won the Emory Cello Concerto, uh, not Cello Concerto, but the Emory uh Concerto competition and played to Vorjock and somehow through there people like linked me up to Vanderbilt and kind of the rest is history but I think um oh gosh because I've lost my train of thought already I, I got because now I got flooded with memories of youth orchestra but um oh, very good yeah you got to remind me of the question now because I forgot yeah. <laughs> so no so just what was it like going from being self-taught to conservatory education oh, yeah. alongside all these people that have been in yeah. on the program since they were four? Oh, okay. That's a really good question. So I did something called governor school. So the governor honors program in Georgia, which mm. is a little different in all states. And it's, it's really different now than what it was when I was a kid. And essentially what that is, is like fake college for students. So you have a major, you have a minor, you can have a double major, you have a double minor, but there's no grades. And when I was in governor school, it was really eye-opening for me because here I am not really coming from formal education, but all of my peers are like, I debuted with the ASO when I was nine. And I'm like, I don't belong here. But it was really <laughs> nice to kind of understand that level of playing. And so I was kind of exposed to that level of playing, I would say before I went to college, like I knew there was more. That's actually how I got so into it. Um, when I went to Vanderbilt, um, that is how I got into this whole yo-yo thing. You know, there was this article that basically said, Blair School of Music training the next yo-yo ma. And yo-yo was at the time coming to Nashville quite a bit. So he was actually a great mentor for me. Um, but because of that article, it reminded people like, you know, no one actually knew what I could or could not do. So at the time I was playing like this really competitive um, kind of showy music, like violin, you know, Paganini caprices, and I could play Dvorak, but I couldn't play like a Mozart sonata. So there was this weird oh. kind of um, starting literally from zero. Um, and so I, you know, I absorbed it like a sponge. I really enjoyed um, just the process of trying to build back some of this lost uh, time and my teachers, you know, my education at Vanderbilt was really interesting because I was also in a quartet and our quartet, mm. um, as a lot of people know, we were called the unofficial quartet and Vanderbilt actually sent us to Paris to continue our studies. And in a quartet setting, as you know, you find all the crannies and nicks of your plane because you have to all be on one accord. And so that actually accelerated my technique in yeah. many ways that I, I really can't um, imitate in any other circumstance. And then also Vanderbilt was really, really kind to me, the faculty. I mean, I still talk to a lot of the faculty to this day. I'm on the advisory for the Dean, the Dean's advisory for Vanderbilt. And, you know, I used to have three lessons a week. So I had one for technique, one for basically one for technique that my teacher was insistent on. Then I had one for repertoire that I really wanted to learn. So the, think of the Paganini's and, you know, I was like, I want to play Fatale Chacon and like play music by the cellist. And then I had a Sonata class um, with Catherine Plummer. And that was really just about kind of collaboration, really understanding like how to put on recitals. And those lessons were in the, on the main concert hall. So it was quite daunting actually, because you really have to learn how to do projection. And then I guess technically I still had orchestral, uh, 
rep. So it was a lot of lessons <laughs> in a week, three teachers and one kind of um, orchestra rep class. But again, I was extremely hungry. So it worked out. Yeah. Wow. No, from being self-taught to three lessons a week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I asked for it. Yeah. You know, I tried the one lesson and I wrote this, uh, it's really funny. I wrote an email to all the faculty and it was labeled my life. And I basically <laughs> was like, I can't do this. Like things are moving too slow. Like I feel like I'm not getting what I need. And really kudos to all the Blair School of Music faculty yeah. because they basically say, okay, like what can we do to make this work for him? And what that was for me was, I was like, I want to learn a, at least a move on a concerto every day and perform it. I want to do all the, like they, they gave me what I needed. So yeah. it was like, kudos to them. That's wow. really, to have to have that, you know, hunger. I think it's so interesting. So you said you started late. How old were you when you actually started playing cello? 12. 12. Okay, oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, you know, for some, it's interesting. So, so for some students that might not feel late, especially in this area, in the, you know, in the Canton area, some students aren't evil, even able to or know about the cello until the age of 12. But it's so interesting how in the orchestral world, we're like, yeah, that's so late. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but for me, I'm a bassoonist. So if I'm going through public school education, I had to start on the clarinet because they wouldn't let me start on the bassoon. So I actually didn't start the bassoon until I was 11 turning 12. So for me, I'm like, oh, that's not that late. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. I think especially it's quite late if you actually look at my performance career. So mm -hmm. the the reality is like the later you start, there are certain aspects just from a physical standpoint that if you didn't grow up playing the instrument, um, it, it's just harder. Mm -hmm. um, and there are certain skills and tools, especially when it comes to like fine motor skills that Yes, you can do it when you're older, but it is a lot more work. Yeah. Um, the flip side to that is it made me, and I'm kind of assuming here, but I think is what makes me such an attractive teacher to people, because unlike a lot of my friends who just do things just because, I mean, they wake up and they can do it. I really had to learn how to do it with a fairly already developed brain. Mm -hmm. And so kind of creating those neural pathways in terms of like the effective way to practice, the effective way to do drills, the effective way to warm up is a lot more conscious to me and so it's much easier I mean that's why I teach so many students outside of cello because I can really break down um, just the basics regardless of yeah. instrument because I that took a lot of work <laughs> to, yeah, to kind of catch up yeah that's really really unique so while you were at Vanderbilt um, and Vanderbilt's a great school I almost went there I I love that that campus all the squirrels they talk about is you know <laughs> it's, a, it's a great place um, but while you were there is kind of where where you say your interest in management, arts administration, education, all of that kind of started blossoming. So what led to the interest in this administrative side besides just the performance and the music? Yeah, I always tell people, I mean, I view my administrative career as an extension of my artistic expression. So, you know, the only difference rather than me being on stage, I'm doing things that facilitate uh, what happens on stage. Um, and as you guys know, especially with Symphonietta, you know, we launch all types of crazy programs that require creativity, whether it be, you know, like I had a meeting today because we're building out a symphonic metaverse for next season. Like, you know, like I still get to be creative and I still yeah. get to do commissions and still get to actually there's a really funny uh, week that I hope we never repeat again. But long story short, we commissioned a piece and um, it was by Joel Thompson and we're both from Atlanta and they were using a cellist that I know very well. And so there was this moment where you had the music director coaching the orchestra and the CEO like, 
coaching the soloists and some of the principals and like how the piece should go because I knew the piece quite well and I was like oh my gosh this is so backwards um but yeah I mean at Vanderbilt they were great I mean there's a lot of things like Vanderbilt Interest Projects which I was the VP for which really got me into it obviously quartet so I even do this with my Roosevelt University students I mean being in a quartet you learn quite a bit about management mm-hmm. because you're essentially managing yourselves even if you do have management and so I like that um and then I really like connecting with people so things like the classical cake with Blake which was hilarious because I had this little Chevy Cavalier car and I used to drive to the Cheesecake Factory and pick up like 40 cheesecakes and I would get all these groups to perform in like the most bizarre location so whether it be the Blair String Quartet or we would pull quartets from Aspen or we had the Cleveland Orchestra actually do one we had I had a Cleveland rock star week um, when they were on tour like I, I I had a lot of flexibility, but I really am loved kind of expressing or I guess exposing people to music in really unconventional ways. And so that was really what was behind it. It was more so like, I think this is cool and I want everyone else to know that it's cool. And luckily Nashville Symphony and Cleveland Orchestra and Aspen, like all these folks were on board. So it gave me some good experience. That's, That's so amazing. Fun. <laughs> Cheesecake. What a great way to bring people together. That is incredible. Yeah. Classical <laughs> cake with Blake. Yeah, I love cool. that. And the name too. I yeah. mean, the, the name could not be any better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what led you then? What was your career path from deciding, okay, I'm, I played in these great orchestras, but I'm going to go to the administrative side. What was your career path that led up to your current position with the Chicago Sinfonietta? I always joke with people, I'm not a phoenix. I'm like, I didn't die as a musician and like get reemerge as an administrator. <laughs> um, and then I think also what frustrates people, but it is kind of more honest, is like, you know, like a lot of people, these paths are not linear, it's much more geometric or catalytic. Right. And so the reality, I was doing a lot of things. Like when I was at New World, I went back to school because I really thought mm, maybe I should go to law school. And mm. the only reason why I passed my exams is because we had Hurricane Irma. And so I had like four and a half weeks to just study and finish all of my exams for, for law school. So, I mean, there's things like this where I'm like, there's a lot of many things that I was just a quite curious person. Um, but in reality, as most people know, I mean, what really pushed me into administration was MTT. So Michael Susan Thomas, really yeah. important mentor of mine um, and uh, a fundamental piece of like how all of this came about. And I remember, cause I was playing for him. This was, I was preparing for Queen Elizabeth competition. I remember this very well. And I ran through the stuff and he gave me his notes. And then uh, I was a little conflicted because I was like, uh, you know, I'm getting older and I got to get off of this competition train. And I was somewhat frustrated. And he was like, well, I'm glad that you mentioned it. And then we went into this whole thing of like, these are all the things that I really want you to be doing. And so um, New World, similar to Vanderbilt, um, really created the space for me to play around with things. So they let me program concerts. They let me take on education programs. They let me take on NWS Connect, which is a part of the mosaic and the online. So, I mean, a lot of these, especially during the pandemic, when people are like, how does Infinita have like a virtual concert hall like so quickly and how did they do all this like video work I'm like well because at New World I was given license to just like play and like you know create you know one of the things MTT had me do was take apart a camera like a a, just a like like a Nikon uh, camera and take it apart 
and all these various pieces and walk around for a couple of weeks and like figure out um, if I had new ideas. So like we like come to these like crazy projects from I think the oddest um, maybe um, origin stories. And same thing for Howard Herring, the CEO at New World. We connected a lot through books. So we would pick a book to read and then that would be kind of the um, uh, impetus for us to like explore like, okay, how does this relate to me or my time at New World, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, a lot of it has to do with MTT essentially saying it's time, like, yes, you can play the cello. We love that. If you want to be in this orchestra, if you work hard enough, we love that. But in reality, you really should be doing something else. And mm -hmm. so he was really keen on like, let's give you enough space and time to figure out what that something else is. And I remember during one of the concerts at New World, because as this essentially explaining my time in Paris and my time with the quartet, but it was an orchestra concert. So it was kind of like, I do a speech, they see a video, the orchestra plays, and it was kind of one of those immersive things. So um, the lighting of the stage and players are also telling a different story of the piece. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like this multi-dimension um, uh, performance. But I do remember at the end of that, someone was like, so what's next? Like, what's your dream job? And I said, I don't know if it exists. I, I think I'm either gonna have to create it or like find something that makes it my own. And so I think I've done that with especially now in Chicago, where, you know, I have Chicago Sinfonietta, but I also have Roosevelt University, and obviously my work with the city, um, and with, you know, these other institutions. So I feel like I've made what works for me. Wow. <laughs> so d did you, did you hold any other positions? Like, Rachel uh, was a edu manager of education before she was a CEO. Did you hold any other positions like that? <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, I was at Spoleto for quite a while, so I was section and then eventually principal and then was a personnel manager at the same time, mm. so that was for sure helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, like... I think people, because I get this question a lot, they're like, what, what exactly happened? I'm like, oh, I mean, it's not one thing. It's like a million little yeah. things that um, one of the things that I did was I oversaw an RFP process for a tour. So mm. there's nothing really significant about that other than the fact that like we made it quite far um, in that process. And once people realized it was me doing it, they're like, what is going on with this kid? Like, how does he have time to do this? And like, also, how does he know how to do this? And I'm like, I just really like, like, the business of music. And so that was part of it. I mean, when I started at Louisville with Teddy, um, obviously I went there for um, learning and community. And then um, I had a kind of uh, really rapid kind of pace of promotions. And then obviously the pandemic happened. And so that also exposed me to a lot of things that I would not have otherwise yeah. done. And so I, I think Louisville was also very important because I got to play around a bit about what leadership really looks like. And so when the opportunity came to do it full time, I thought, why not? Like, I actually yeah. like it a lot more than I thought I did. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I really like that you say that because I think um, in the administrative side of orchestral management, everyone assumes a very linear path of how you get to leadership. Um, and for a long time, I feel like the people who became president and CEOs, the executive directors, they were at one point the orchestra manager, or they were at one point, like, you know, they did director of development, for or they sure. touched all these different departments. But I think, you know, you know, I got hired into, in the, into this symphony when I was manager of education, community engagement, but, you know, I was right out of college, but it was like all those little things, you know, I'd done different types of fast, like you know, I didn't ever just sit down and do administrative work. I'd done little things that added up to me having knowledge of how this works. And so 
I'm really glad that you said that because I think it's important for people to know that like the arts management field, the arts administration field is, I think there's more room for different types of people in it than traditionally. You don't have to be like, I went to school for business. Um, (laughs) You know, like, I I mean, you definitely have to learn. You have to learn it. You better learn it. You have to learn it, but you don't have to go to school for it. I mean, I always remind people like, because I was self-taught on cello, the idea of kind of quote unquote teaching myself or putting myself in education environments in which I would learn how to be a CEO it's not that far of a stretch yeah. so I'm like I, the, the self-taught curiosity piece I think is more critical yeah. than whether or not I got my MBA right and I think the curiosity is the most important thing of of you know I I, I don't think I'll I, you know, this is me saying something. Now, I don't know if I'll ever go get my master's because I'm learning it by doing it. And I, um, not that getting a master's degree isn't important and valuable, but I just think at this point now for me, I'm like, I'd rather just be working and doing and learning that way. Um, so yeah, and you've alluded to the fact that you do a lot of other stuff too. You teach at Roosevelt, you work with the city, you're on a ton of boards and committees. Can you talk a lot, you know, maybe pick uh, like one or two or something that just stands out to you in this moment as, as work outside of what is typical for someone doing your job that you feel is important and helps you be more well-rounded as a person and, and how you serve the orchestral field. Sure. And, you know, one of the things that you're saying, like, it's good to share that it's not linear, you know, the orchestra manager position has become highly specialized mm-hmm. over the last kind of 10 or 15 years, uh, more so than people realize. So, um, it is really difficult to find someone who has kind of the know-with-all of all the various departments. Um, Every board has a different mentality in terms of what can someone learn on the job versus what someone needs to have coming into Mm -hmm. it. And again, I was really fortunate because I had some interim duties and jobs right before I came here. So I, I had some real experience before I came in, mm-hmm. but it is a tricky thing. Um, yeah. In terms of the work that I like outside of it, you know, this is probably a biggest pro and con in the sense that I love running an orchestra. It brings me so much joy, but as everyone knows, I love so many other things as well. I'm like, they're all my babies. Um, <laughs> and the city work specifically is really great. You know, one of the things, uh, you know, I'm on the cultural advisory council for the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events and a bunch of other stuff with the city. And I really love it. Like one of the things we did uh, recently is I um, went on a delegation with the mayor to both Paris and London. And people were like, what is the arts guy doing here? And I'm like, well, when you think about economic activity or you think about business development or you think about yeah. what a company needs to recruit talent yes. and like sustain talent, I'm like culture and community is actually a significant part of that. Mm-hmm. So if we can't make a, a valid case for like what will keep people in the city, like the, we might not get that headquarter, headquarter or we might not get that business. There's also just practical things in the sense that you know, in London, they have this beautiful 24-hour city model and kind of what that means. And so when you think of like arts and culture literally touching everything from transportation to public housing to like urban uh, development, and like arts and culture is a significant part of that. Chicago is quite unique in the sense that we are able to give recommendations to the other departments, as well as we have our own pillar in our city plan. So Chicago just went through this really crazy process of putting a new city plan, the first one in 50 years. And the first pillar that you see when you open the book is arts and culture. So, I mean, it touches so much when you look at like cultural corridors, you know, this idea of 
You can put all of the money that you want to into a new grocery store or a new kind of hospital. But if you don't have things around it that can increase foot traffic, or if you don't have, you know, things that can keep people like well, I say here because our offices are in the um, dominant financial sector, but if you don't have things for people to do after they get off work, you know, they want to get that beer, they want to go to a show, they want to see the theater, but like there's a lot of planning and strategy that goes behind that. So yeah. I love the city work because it touches everything, everything from, you know, gig workers who work at night, this idea of like, if you're a female gig worker and where do you use the restroom in between gigs or how do you get hot food? Like all of these things that people might not think of. Um, so I, I love it. It touches literally every single part of the city. And so it's a never, ending learning curve for me. Wow. And that's so important. I, that is something that I was just, both of us were just nodding and nodding and nodding as you're talking, because that's just so, so important that our arts and culture people are strong voices in government and strong voices in our communities when it comes to development and planning and what we're going, what, you know, it's just so important. And I don't think people realize that in a lot of communities. And I just, I'm so applaud in Chicago. That's so cool. I'm really glad you do that. And you know, it's a hugely important thing for attracting people, as yeah. you said, to a city. I mean, I'm, my fiance is from a small town and I was like, you know, I, I like visiting where you grew up, but I couldn't live there. Like I, I need more, I need more arts and culture. You know, there's some there, but like somewhere like Chicago, it's, it, it, there's everything in Chicago. My brother lives in Chicago. So I've, I've had the yeah. good fortune to spend a lot of time there and there's everything. There's so much to do all the time. And it's, it's just wonderful. And mm-hmm. the, the fact that you're so involved in that work is, yeah is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cool. So another committee you serve on is the uh, League of American Orchestras EDI Orchestral Management Committee. Uh, tell us a little bit, why is EDI work so important to you and why should our audience care? Sure. My partner in crime and someone I respect greatly is Kim Nolte. She's the senior president at Dallas Symphony. Yeah, and she, I love Kim. <laughs> yeah. Um, she was kind of why I joined that committee. I think, uh, I mean, I do a lot of EDI work. Obviously, Symphonietta is like quite, we live in that space daily, and that's what it was founded on. Um, but in terms of my involvement with other orchestras and other leadership teams, I do a lot of like consultation work with them. And so part of it just makes sense because I already do it, but this was just like a formal way to be involved. Um, the second part is, is, you know, expanding people's definition or understanding of what equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging actually means. And so I think this idea that, you know, what works in Miami would work in New York or what works in New York would work in, you know, Arkansas, like, it's, it, it's really different. So even yeah. for my students, we really go through the definitions of what does, you know, what does access or representation, to, representation look like if you're looking at physical cognitive abilities, or what does it look like from horizontal segregation versus vertical segregation? What does it look like in terms of like, who's behind the scenes, behind the lens of all the things that you see? What does it look like in terms of your investment statement policy? Like, what does it look like for your vendors? Like, it touches so many yeah. other things. And so that is really kind of the purpose, at least of why I wanted to be involved with it, is for people to be a little bit more creative outside of just, you know, how many ets do we have in the orchestra or how many ets people do we have on staff? I'm like, for you to actually do this properly, it, it really is every single thing. Yeah. Um, 
down to, you know, who are you buying lunches or breakfast materials for staff or you're like, who's those vendors? And so it, yeah, that's why I got involved is obviously for our field, we have a long way to go, um, but there's been a lot of progress. Um, but this idea of this just one kind of um, bristle, if you will, and a larger kind of paintbrush that we need to paint this new 21st century orchestra uh, is important. And so I always tell people I don't criticize things I don't myself throw myself into. And so this idea that um, I think it's really important to work in systems like the, the League of American Orchestras to um, find solutions that are not necessarily catch-alls, but at least give people proof of concept and really develop that muscle of, again, being curious of close your eyes and imagine who you want in the room and then open your eyes when you're at a concert or a show and see who's not there and let's put out some plans to get them into the room. So whether that be an accessibility issue or a financial barrier, like obviously we launched the pay what you can program and it tickles me. I was in New York recently and someone was like, I used to pay what you can ticket at Lincoln Center. And I'm like, that's so cool. I don't know if you know where this idea came from, but I, I really <laughs> love that you have that, you know, I'm like that office under EDI. So uh, EDIB. So I, I, I love it. And obviously it's one of many things, but it's a necessary part of the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. So we've taught, we've mentioned a lot about the Chicago yeah. Sinfonietta so far, but most of our listeners might not be aware of your orchestra and what you do. So tell us just a little bit about the mission of the Chicago Sinfonietta and why you are unique in the orchestra world. Oh, that's really good. So Chicago Sinfonietta, its mission, which is championing equity, diversity, and inclusion by creating community through both symphonic experiences. And so other than the EDI part, the experiences is a big part of what we do. So the audience development, you know, when you come to a concert, you're probably going to dance. When you come to a concert, you're probably going to talk to people that you've never even seen before. Like, the, you know, Mayan is quite active and has more energy than the sun. And so there's a, a lot of kind of, it feels different when you come to a symphonietta concert. Um, Paul Freeman, who was an amazing um, conductor um, back in the um, 20th century, uh, he, like many Black artists, um, whether it be classical or non-classical, obviously could not have the career that they quote unquote deserved in the States for various reasons. And so they went to Europe and we are really fortunate that Paul Freeman decided to come back to the States and said, I really wanna create an orchestra um, that represents and looks like the city in which it resides. So he created Chicago Symphon Symphonietta uh, in 1987. And a lot of people know us mainly because obviously on stage, we're a big proponent of um, representation. So I think even right now, uh, as we do our end of year appeal, I think people don't know how many countries actually are represented in the orchestra. Mm -hmm. It's a really unique uh, situation to have so many different people. And then obviously, there a lot of people know us through our fellowship program. So I won't run down every single program that we have. But I think the easiest way to understand Symphonietta is that we are very much Chicago based, but we also have a second role in defining what like the fringes of being more inclusive and being more representative of the larger population looks like. So the pay what you can kind of campaign is a really good example because when that was first announced, people were quite, mm, the, I think the polite way to say is almost, um, more than just like against it. I mean, it was almost kind of laughed at if I'm being quite frank. And so it's been nice to see 
how well this been adopted because I'm like, I do remember when it was first got rolled out and the response that we got, uh, it was really interesting. And so the pay what you can program obviously is one of it. Um, the fellowship, the Freeman fellowship. So we have uh, fellows for administration, uh, orchestral playing, conducting and composition. So it really is important for people to understand like when you see Roger Cox with the Metropolitan Opera, you see Kendrick with the Royal Scottish Symphony, I'm like, you name it, if it's a female, artist or conductor or a person of color, you know, eight out of 10, nine times out of 10, they actually did their training with Symphonietta. And so it's a really important output of representation. And then obviously things like recording. So now, you know, uh, you can find a recording to Price or you can find a recording to Bonds or whoever, uh, Hillstork. But many of those recordings, if you actually look at the dates, Symphonietta was the first one to record them. Yeah. So a lot of these pieces, the, the reason why people even know what they are is because Paul Freeman did a lot of work with the um, African-American Heritage series. Obviously, Mayan has the Project W. So this was long before you saw like all women uh, concerts or all female kind of um, campaigns. Like we had the Project W recording. Um, there's the Black Composers Project with CBS. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of just groundwork that allows so many orchestras to essentially run. So that Symphonietta has a really interesting role in the sense that we're very much Chicago-based, but we have tentacles literally all over the world. Yeah. And just to clarify for the, our listeners, May Yen is the current music director? Yes. yes yeah. Maestra, Maestra May Yen Chen. She's great. Yeah. So we have had the pleasure of talking with a ton of really cool people on this podcast. One of them is Anwar Nasir. He was our first episode this season. And we talked a lot about being a black administrator, specifically a black executive director. And he rightfully, he, you know, we pointed out and talked about for a while about how sometimes he's like, I feel like sometimes we all get lumped into one category. Like we're the black executive directors. He's like, but I'm very different than Blake Anthony. And you know, he's like, we're very different people. And so I, you know, I, I just saw, I thought that that was a really interesting point. Also, I think I should bring up Virginia symphony just hired a female black executive director, um, uh, Dr. Andrea Warren, which she's the first black female woman to be a CEO of an American orchestra. And so that's really, really exciting. But what you on the mean, heels of them having I mean, one of the first women conductors in Joanne Folletta uh, yeah, as their it's, music it's director. Super fun. So Who's it's, also a dear, dear mentor. Yeah. Same for me. <laughs> I, I'm a Manus graduate and I got to do the Julius Rudell Fellowship yeah. through the Buffalo Philharmonic. Oh, and yeah. To this day, Joanne is a dear, dear friend of mine. <laughs> and and she was a podcast, podcast guest yeah. the first season. So, yeah, it's it's just so, it's it, so, you know, Onward, like, really, you know, made me think about, you know, these unique challenges. It's why I love this podcast and talking to people because we really want to get to know the people working in this field. And we love to know about the organizations and all these cool things. But for you, as, you know, uniquely as being an African-American executive director in this field, what have you found to be, if any, the challenges that that presents to you while working in this space? I, I always remind people, I mean, orchestras don't live in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when I get asked this question, I, I'm like, well, pull statistics of like 
you know, median income against different demographics or look at the pregnancy mortality rate for mm -hmm. black females. Yeah. Or like, I'm like, like all the issues systemic and systematic that happen in our country obviously bleed into the field. Um, and so it's no different than I would say uh, than any of my colleagues in, in, in the other sector. Obviously for orchestra specifically, it is different in the sense of how the structure is. So the fact that you have, uh, you have different so quote unquote sectors of employees. You have some that are, you know, tenured, you have some that come and go, you have a board. And so the timeline in which those groups change um, makes it quite unique because, you know, a lot of things that we want to see in the orchestra field, um, I have to remind people and manage expectations of, you know, it's not like a tech company where I can just buy out the tech company, fire everyone <laughs> I don't like, and then put the people that I want in, you know, like yeah. you can't do yeah. that. It's a much slower, and also just reality of going back, you know, I said 12 was quite late. So even like for us, we have the fellowship program, which is the 26 to 40 years old, but we have several programs under that. We have Making Music, we have Chicago Musical Pathways Initiative, we have this whole pipeline. Yeah. But by the time we start that, we don't see the dividends of that maybe until 20 years later. Yeah. So we had our first um, C, so that's string ensembles for excellence diversity. The first student who went through that program, so think like fifth grade, is now won a, a position in our orchestra a few years ago. Wow. And I'm like, you know, that is a long time, you know, that, that's a long arch uh, in terms of planning. And so I think in terms of difficulties is no different than everything else that people see on the news. Um, I, I will say it is um, for our sector specifically, I'm much more concerned about removing barriers more so than I am again about counting numbers. Yeah. So this idea of um, there are uh, systemic and systematic things that, uh, for instance, one of the pushes that I've put, I'm glad you brought up the LAO um, EDI committee, is about having HR departments for orchestras. So, yeah. you know, that's a still yes. a fairly new concept. And so I obviously like tripled down on our HR department and uh, we share all of our policies and things of that nature. And, you know, we share what that means, but you would be surprised if the vast majority of our workers just don't have an HR department. Oh yeah, we know. We don't we have don't. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've, when I've you had think, to learn HR because that's now my job. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's just really important because yeah. when people think of like, what does EDI mean? I'm like, you can do all those things to get them in the door, but it is still for many a quite hostile environment. I remind people all the time, you know, I go to a lot of places who they might not know who I am, right? And right. I'm really good at blending in. Like, I know I'm taking up a lot of space right now with the regalias and the slashing, but I can, I can blend in quite well. And I have many times terrible experiences walking into other concert halls. And so if that mm -hmm. is my experience, I'm always curious what it is like for others who might not have the same love and effect in history yeah. for the art form as I do because I can kind of brush it under the table and be like yes this happened but look at all these other things in progress but for just the lay person yeah. it is still quite hostile whether it be as an employee or a, just a new audience member and so just simple things like an HR department yeah. um, is why I think like oh there are these are problems that we can solve so in, in terms of what makes it unique I just think I um, obviously, I, I'm very much an insider <laughs> that is really like trying to push us 
um, for. So I think it comes off a little bit differently because again, people know me from my performance history and they also know me just from my teachers and mentors. So I think in many ways I have it quite easy because there is a bit of trust that I have when I'm kind of um, introducing some of these crazier ideas. Yeah. That's so cool. Blake Anthony, it's been such a pleasure <laughs> to talk to you today. I really yeah. wish that we could go on like this for hours, like, but we know that you, are, <laughs> uh, you have some limited time with us. So we would like to ask you in closing the question that we ask all of our podcast guests at the end of each episode, how do we orchestrate change? It's always cliche, but you know, so much of the change that, at least it's required in our field is really an internal process. It's not external. And so um, I think often um, I always have all these kind of like quotes in my head, but um, the Warren Buffett one of like, you gotta, you know, make the choice to take a chance if you want anything to change. Yeah. There's many different iterations of that quote from different people. But I think one of the best things we can do is like, what is the individual work? I think when people think of EDIV or they think about progressing the field, they're always looking externally. And I'm like, listen, I am privy to most of the things that happens in a lot of orchestras. And I'm like, if most people just focus on the work that you need to do as an individual, that would actually be far more advantageous for the field because it really doesn't, we don't need heroes. What we really need is just a bunch of foot soldiers who are really committed and like making this art form, art form live kind of past our specific time. And the only way to do that is to challenge yourself. And so I, I'm much more kind of interested in people doing that journey because it really is a brutal internal process more than it is external. Wow. I just thank you so much for being with us and for and for talking Pleasure. with us. I mean, uh, you're someone that I've, you know, ever since I got introduced to you, I'd, I respected all the work that you do. And the energy that you bring to this field is very refreshing. And it's really exciting to see someone as excited as you being in this field, because I, you know, it's, it's, I feel like sometimes, uh, we lose that energy and that drive and that focus. And it's just really fun to talk with someone who cares so much musically, artistically, and managerially about what we do in this field. So I just want to thank you so much for, for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. This is great. Blake Anthony Johnson, CEO of the Chicago Sinfonietta. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.